Well, who are you? How you answer that question pretty much guide how you will live, how you go throughout life. In our text this morning, I invite you to go ahead and be opening up to that, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. But in this text, John lays before us, he has three parties in mind, and how he identifies them has much to say with how, how believers, how we will handle living in a hostile world. So again, turn with me and um, just note for those visiting, I typically preach through the English Standard Version. If you want to use that particular text, you'll find it as an insert uh, in the bulletin. But you're welcome, of course, to use any of your uh, translations. Again, beginning with verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Let's stop there. And note, first of all, John is identifying himself, and as he identifies himself, he identifies his readers, the Christians to whom he is writing, to gather their partners in what? The tribulation, the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Let's look at those three identifying marks. Notice two of them have to do with suffering. There's tribulation, and there is patient endurance in suffering. Now, that first thing, the tribulation, they have no control over that. Tribulation is forced upon them. It Indeed, it has become a way of life for them. They are members of a minority new religion. It is held in suspect by their neighbors. It is held in disdain by many others. Indeed, it is even seen as dangerous by many of the, of the authorities, the civil authorities. So they don't have control over this tribulation again, that they are starting to go under, being forced on. What they do have control over is their response to these hardships. They can face it through patient endurance. And that's the reason for the book of Revelation. It is the reason why John is writing this letter to them. It is to encourage the fellow believers in Christ to patiently endure afflictions that they are facing for their faith. Now, note what's between tribulation and patient endurance. It's another identifying mark there. And it's what explains the reason for the tribulation. It also explains the motive that they may have, gives them that motive to patiently endure. 
John and his readers are partners in the kingdom. It's the kingdom that is in Jesus, that belongs to Jesus. John's readers are facing uh, tribulation because they belong to this kingdom. That's it. That's the only reason they are. They might on earth be counted as citizens of, of the kingdom of Rome and of whatever local territory that they happen to be living in. But he is noting that their ultimate and true citizenship is in and of the kingdom of their Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes them suspect to the world. Now, why should it? Because the values of the kingdom of Jesus Christ are opposed to the values of this world. And as we're told in Ephesians 2, 2, this world is what belongs to the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, namely to Satan. There are two remarks by the Apostle Paul that illustrates this conflict that the believers undergo. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul is writing in chapter 2, verse 2, and he instructs instructs Christians to pray for their government leaders. And he gives the reason why. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified life in every way. That's the purpose. He then writes another letter to Timothy. And he makes an observation There, in chapter 3, verse 12, that all, by the way, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It goes with the territory. That's what happens when a citizen who belongs to Jesus Christ and his kingdom lives in an earth-bound kingdom. But with that territory, there also comes the power to live in such a predicament. Because we live under and in through the power of Jesus Christ. We face tribulation for and in Jesus. And therefore, we can patiently endure uh, this suffering in Jesus Christ by the power that he gives to us through the Holy Spirit. And indeed, not only do they survive, but they conquer. As Jesus was going to speak of later on when we get into chapter 2 and he addresses each church. He speaks of them and he commends them for being able to overcome, to conquer. Now, what does it mean to conquer? Well, it means to conquer the temptation to compromise one's faith. That might be from persecution of the world. It might be enticements by the world. It means to keep the faith no matter what. And there's an interesting window into this whole context of what I'm talking about, of of tribulation and kingdom and patient enduring. And it's found in a letter that was written in 112 A.D. It was written by a governor, a Roman governor, to the emperor. And he's asking guidance on how to handle this this ongoing problem of Christians. I want you to listen. I'm going to read it to you. It's from Pliny the Younger. 
He's addressing the emperor Trajan. And again, the year is 112. And this is just, you know, decade or two decades after the revelation is written. He writes to the emperor. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods and words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your, the emperor's image, and moreover cursed Christ. And then know what he says, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. They, that is those who repented, asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. He goes on to write, Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. And then he continues, For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But, he's hopeful here, it seems possible to check and cure it, it is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites long neglected are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, from which until now very few purchases, purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded. Now, Pliny was not a violent man. I, I've, I've read all of his letters, and indeed, he'd, he'd be considered uh, quite reasonable for his day. Most of his letters are about just road construction, and he's building a house, a villa somewhere. It's just a normal, reasonable man. But as you note, he has few qualms with executing the Christians whom he sees, well, they're just stubborn. They should be executed for that reason alone. He will even torture them. And the best that he can tell is that if no one has done anything offensive. Indeed, 
there are exemplary in their morals. Nevertheless, this is what they get. It comes with the territory of living in the Roman Empire at that time. Now, you noted the two heroes, didn't you? The two female slaves tortured simply to gather info. They endured. They conquered for the kingdom of their Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is seeking in his people. Now, let's turn to Jesus himself. John, uh, before we get to that passage, again, let's be reminded of the, the context. We know that it is of suffering, but I want you to also be thinking about this for the, for the believers. Added to the struggles of the, the new religion, just you know, trying to keep a tall hole in the Roman Empire, there's a the matter that their religion is based on humility. Their savior was rejected by his own people. Their savior was crucified by Rome. Now, yes, they proclaim that he rose from the dead, but that is surely a claim of faith. And indeed, actually, the Apostle Paul admitted this. He said the message of cross is folly. It's just foolishness to the Gentiles, to, to Romans and to Greeks. And indeed, when we move to the resurrection, probably likely when, what Pliny was referring to was the belief in the resurrection when he talked about this excessive superstition concept that their Savior, who had died on a cross, had risen from the dead. So in light of that, this is the Savior that, that they're following. This is their, their, what the message they're proclaiming. They seem to be taking a beating. Jesus now reveals to John just who he is, just who this crucified Savior really is. With that in mind, look in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And we know, those of you who, who had attended the, the conference on Revelation, and, and I believe you know, Sam preached upon last week, we, we know that John is drawing from images from the Old Testament, particularly Daniel and Ezekiel for his language, and trying to describe what he sees. But he's not, he's not merely turning to them kind of oh, like we might turn to a thesaurus. What can I, good words that I can find. He's using that language from the past because that language speaks of the anointed one to come who is equated with God. And he's saying, here he is. But the real matter is the reason 
why Jesus takes the opportunity to reveal himself to John. He doesn't need to do that. He can just speak. But he chooses to reveal himself. Why? Well, if a picture is worth a thousand words, think what it is of an experience, of how it accomplishes when it overwhelms the five senses more than any words could ever convey. I mean, we, we read these words and we go, wow, that's, that's something. When John sees Jesus in his glory, he falls down as though dead. It's no doubt what we would do the same if Jesus was to appear like that right now. And this is the point that this is the Jesus who is the head of his church who is ruling over his kingdom, who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is the Jesus who is the savior of his people. And however much his kingdom on earth is dressed in humility, however humble the gospel may seem, however humble the the savior might be depicted, he is the God of glory. Do not doubt it. His glory is such as to behold him is to directly behold the sun shining in its full strength. To come under his gaze is is like feeling the flames of fire. To hear his voice is, is both deafening and it is piercing to the heart. No wonder we see the reaction of John in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Fear not, John. Do not fear to be in the presence of Jesus, for For though his glory is overpowering, he remains your Savior who died for you. And if there had been any doubt, it is clear that Jesus is not not simply like the, the once king that was there. Maybe the future king who will someday come. He's the living one now who is alive forever and who is reigning forevermore. Indeed, he who died now possesses the keys to death and Hades. They can not only not hold him in the grave, they must submit to his authority. This is the Jesus of John. And of all who are patiently enduring the tribulation as members of his kingdom, that's what the, the hymn writer in the second hymn that, that, that we sang, Be Still My Soul, was talking about. All that is mysterious now will be bright at last. There's a great future there as far as because of who is holding the keys for us, who is alive forevermore. So John has identified himself and his fellow believers They are those who who live in the kingdom of Christ. They're going through tribulation. They are patiently enduring it. He has identified their Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the glorious living one. 
And now he's going to give a depiction of what churches are. We now come to the local church, and it's represented by the seven churches to whom the letter is sent. We learn of their names. We read about them in verse 11. We know of their location. They're in Asia Minor. These are very real churches. Now, a particular interest is how they are depicted in John's vision. Look in verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I want us to think for a moment. Why lampstands? Now, if you were a Jewish, particularly at that time, you'd immediately be thinking of the temple. There's the one lampstand with seven uh, lamp containers there. No doubt you'd be thinking of that. What they did is that they bore the light produced from the oil and the, the wick. The lampstands themselves are not light, but what do they do? They bear light. What are the churches? Jesus is saying, the churches are lampstands that bear my light. They are the light of Jesus Christ. Now, to whom, for what purpose do they bear light? Well, Russell read about it earlier in the service in Matthew 5. Let me, let me read it again. Okay, this is the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The church, the church universal, and each local church are lights of, they are lights for this dark world. Now, how is the local church the light of Christ? Well, by its people. The church, by definition, are the people in that particular collection who follow in Christ. And they are living out the gospel. The church must faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ. All the more essential then for that church to demonstrate the change that the gospel effects. Let's go back to those Christians living under Pliny's rule. You remember that letter he wrote. What did he say about them? They worship Christ as God. Real Christians according to Pliny, did not deny Jesus. So there they are proclaiming. And then as to their lives, he could not find anything about them that was bad, just simply that they were bound not to do bad stuff, not to commit crime, not to commit immorality. They bound themselves to be folks who kept their word, who could be depended on. And so these Christians showed forth the light of the one whom they worshipped and proclaimed as Lord. 
Now, someone might object. Well, it wasn't an effective light, was it? Because Pliny certainly was not converted. Well, that's true. Pliny was not converted. But what is his concern? That many people were being converted. The whole reason for why he's doing the persecution is to check the contagion. It's going everywhere. And that is the reason, too, why Pliny's hope, you know, he's thinking, you know, I think we're making progress here now, is going to be dashed. Because this superstition would eventually conquer, literally, the Roman Empire. Now, one other thing to note in the depiction of the churches. See that part about the stars? They are the angels of the churches. Now, who are these angels? Are they guardian angels? Maybe something like that. And why would Jesus later address himself to them? When, When we get to the part where each church is being addressed, Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church. Well, angels don't need to be rebuked. Evidently, what's happening here is that these angels are some kind of like a guardian angel. They represent their churches before God in heaven. Think about that. These angels, they're impressing upon us that we have angels, that the local churches are more than what they seem. Local churches are not merely earthly congregations. They belong to the divine fellowship and worship that's taking place in heaven. We have our own star up there in the heavens before the face of God representing us. I mean, isn't that a neat thought? That in our very worship right now, we are engaged, taking part in the worship that is before God. That's who we are. Well, we've talked about these ways in which John has identified individual believers, how he's identified Jesus, how he's identified local churches. Let's move this all to the present. How do these different identities apply to us here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church? Well, fortunately, I don't think we have to worry about the governor of Georgia having us tortured to find out what we're doing in our church services. We're not going through that kind of tribulation. Is there tribulation? Well, to a degree. I mean, I would think likely at some time or other, even you have experienced some kind of form of ridicule or or bias based on your personal faith. And no doubt, I mean, it just can't be argued now, our society has moved into a post Christian era. And advocating Christian beliefs, especially in moral matters, it's unpopular now. And it's growing even more increasingly unpopular. There have been believers who have lost their jobs, those who have lost their businesses because of lawsuits. But the issue before us now, which was the issue for the Christians to whom John wrote, lies in how we identify ourselves. Do we identify ourselves as citizens of Christ's kingdom before we identify ourselves 
and earthly kingdoms, in this case of the country, the nation of America. Now, if so, what matters then to us is how well we represent our King, Jesus Christ. What matters is how well we patiently endure whatever comes. What matters is how well we show forth the light of Jesus Christ to the world. You know, the, the apostles expected tribulation. Jesus had told them to expect it. He said, because the world hated him, the world will hate them. It's in John 15. But what mattered to Jesus, and you'll see this clearly through all the epistles to the apostles, was that his followers neither falter in their faith, nor that they shame the gospel through giving in to the ways of the world, whether that might be by yielding to temptation, it might be reverting to hatred by becoming like the world. Let me give you a model of that. Peter, the Apostle Peter, his first epistle, the letter of first epistle, models this view. The purpose for which he is writing is the same for, uh, for John. He's writing to Christians who are facing suffering. Now, what does he tell them? Well, he identifies them. He says, you are exiles in the world. He also identifies them as the elect of God. And he reminds them that they possess the inheritance of glory. That they were redeemed, not by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. They are, they once were not the people of God, now they are the people of God. They are a kingdom of priests. As a result, he then tells them, instructs them that they are to live holy lives. They are to proclaim the excellencies of God. They are to live honorable lives before the Gentiles, that is, through unbelievers. They are to be subject, he tells them, to civil authorities. He tells them they are to honor the emperor. He mentions the slaves among them. He says, you're to serve even harsh, unbelieving masters, being mindful of God. He speaks to wives to, who have unbelieving husbands, and he says, seek to win them through your gentle conduct. He tells everyone to repay evil and reviling with blessing. That's how they're to live. They are to endure suffering Patiently. In fact, they are to do it so well that people are going to ask them to give a reason for the hope that is in them. And even then, he reminds them, do so with gentleness and respect, even to the very persons who are slandering them. They are not to be surprised at fiery trial. Indeed, they are even to rejoice that they share in Christ's sufferings. Now, again, keeping all of this in mind, let's, let's apply it. I mean, we have entered into complicated and unsettling times as American Christians. We have. Most of us grew up in an environment that supported our faith and values. You know, I, we had devotions in school and 
And the values of the Christian faith morally were the values of the society. At least that's what society proclaimed was. Now, do we simply concede that we've lost? Or do we fight to keep the heritage? Well, that's a question for each person to consider. And the Lord might lead you in different ways. But what John or Peter or, or any of the apostles would say to us, that however we may think God would have each of us to act within our own political system, far different from that of Rome, we must, we must, as Peter exhorted the Christian slaves, be mindful of God. Indeed, we are to live with the understanding that we have been called to suffering. Let me read from Peter. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. So we need to take stock of ourselves in these times that we have entered. We need to review our words, our manner. We need to reflect, are we living as those who live in Christ's kingdom or to the world. You may notice sometimes, because I repeat myself all the time in my pastoral prayer, and I'll give thanks to God, He's ruling, He's sovereign, and I'll say, Forgive us for the times we forget about this, and we live as though we're in the world. Let me give you an assignment, a very specific assignment. And Ginger's heard me talk about this, not, not from any of you, because I'm not on your Facebook page or Twitter or anything like that, but if you post on Facebook or Twitter, if you're really with it, or, or you forward emails, you're still the old guard who forwards emails and stuff, I want you to go back. I want you to look at your last ten postings or forwardings. See what they're about. Not the ones about family or cute pets. I love the ones about cute pets. But how many... Ask yourself this, would, would lead a reader to ask you for the hope that you have in the gospel? How many would lead a person who differs with you politically or morally to ask you about your hope in Christ? Because that's what comes through. I have a dear brother in the Lord, went to seminary with, or ministers together, and all he posts about, you would have no idea that he's a pastor. You would know very clearly how he feels politically. You would not know very, you know very little about what he believes about his Lord. And like I'm not diminishing the importance of what's going on with culture wars. And I'm saying whether you should be engaged or not engaged in them. But always remember that the cause of Christ's kingdom, it transcends all other matters. The ultimate cause for Christians is not about what we can do for America 
or Europe or any other nation. It's about being lampstands for the glory of Christ to shine in this dark world. The day will come when Christ's glory will shine directly upon the world and everything and everyone will be judged rightly. He will be exalted as Lord. But until that day, whatever light is now seen is seen in Christ's followers and Christ's churches. If it's not seen in us, it will not be seen at all. And so let the light of Christ shine in you. Let's pray.